If I was to ask you, who or what do you put your trust in, I wonder what you would say. I guess it would depend upon the situation, but how about some of the following suggestions? Some of us put our trust in our mobile phone. We carry it everywhere with us. We'd have a minor panic if we found ourselves without it. Our phone means that we can call for help and search the internet for answers wherever we are, and we find that immensely reassuring. Some of us put our trust in money. We amass savings in the bank. We build a pension fund. We're constantly seeking a better paid job. With money, we feel as though we can buy ourselves out of any trouble that comes our way. Some of us put our trust in public servants. In an emergency, we go to the police and the medical services. Just look at the response that the NHS got during the pandemic, and rightly so. The whole country felt as though they relied upon them. Some of us put our trust in family and friends, the people around us who we love. We trust them to give us good advice. We trust them to be there for us when we're upset or unwell. We trust them to support us. Now, all four of these things are good. They clearly have their strengths. And family and friends certainly are a wonderful blessing. We're all much safer in a community of those who love us. But I'd like to encourage us today not to fall into, tra into the trap of thinking that these things alone will save the day. For at different times, all four of these things will let us down. There are plenty of places on Isla where you struggle to get phone signal. There are relational issues that money just cannot solve. There are illnesses that even the brilliant NHS cannot cure. And our family and friends are human, just like us, and so make mistakes. At times, we all need something more. What we need is God. This morning, we're going to learn that God is always with us, and he is always reliable, and he has the power to save us from our greatest fears. And on learning that, we're going to try and put our trust in him. Now, for us to have any chance of understanding our passage this morning, we're going to need to know quite a lot of historical background. So bear with me. I'm going to do this as quickly as as I can. The year is 735 BC. And at this time in their history, the 12 tribes of Israel have split into two separate kingdoms. Rather confusingly, the 10 tribes in the north are called Israel. I guess that's because they were the majority of the people. And in the south, the two remaining tribes of God's people are called Judah. And importantly, Judah makes up the area around the capital city of Jerusalem. Judah is where God's holy temple is. Judah's king is the one directly descended from King David, the one that God had made an important covenant with. Now, at that time, the biggest threat to God's people were Assyria. They were the superpower of the day, and they had a reputation for being incredibly violent. Assyria's ambition was to extend the area of its control right from their capital, Nineveh, to the Mediterranean Sea. And as you can see from this map, that put the northern kingdom of Israel 
in a very vulnerable position. So what did Israel do? Well, they came up with a plan. They decided to team up with the neighboring nation of Aram so they could resist Assyria together. But then they went a step further. Once united with Aram, Israel also asked Judah to join them as well, knowing that three countries would make a stronger coalition than just two. But to their shock, Judah refused. Perhaps it was because they were much further south, they didn't feel as threatened by Assyria. Why would they want to join a war against a violent superpower that didn't really affect them? Sounds a bit like the politics of certain nations today when thinking about Russia-Ukraine, doesn't it? Anyway, on hearing their refusal to join, Israel and Aram are furious. So they decide to put pressure on Judah. In fact, they decide to go to war against them. You see, they're trying to force a regime change. They want to remove Ahaz, Judah's king, and replace him with their own man, named in this passage as the son of Tabeel. With their friend on the throne, they know that Judah would be forced to join them in their resistance against Assyria. Now let's just stop there a moment and ask the question, what are King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Israel putting their trust in? They're facing difficulty. What are they turning to? Well, it's clear, isn't it? They're putting all their trust in the size of their army and the mass of military weapons in their armory. In fact, they're so utterly set on their battle tactics, we are now in the horrifying situation where one part of God's people has gone to war against the other part of God's people. Israel are attacking Jerusalem. Israel are attacking the place of God's temple and the throne of David's dynasty. This is civil war. And it must have broken God's heart. Anyway, now we're in the place where our passage begins. As the people of Judah see Israel and Aram marching towards them, they're terrified. Verse 2 tells us that they were quivering like the trees of the forest in the wind. And so the question comes again. Who are Judah going to put their trust in, in this time of great fear? Well, God wants them to wholeheartedly put their trust in him. So he sends his prophet Isaiah to speak a message to King Ahaz. At that time, Ahaz is out checking Jerusalem's water supply. The city was about to come under siege. He needed to safeguard and protect this. It's a sensible and responsible thing to do. But just as in our opening illustrations, Ahaz must not fall into the trap of thinking that human strategy alone will save the day. Interestingly, when God sent Isaiah to speak to Ahaz, he tells him to take his son with him. And God had previously told Isaiah what to name his son. His name was Sheer Jashub, which in Hebrew means a remnant will return. In that situation, it was a very telling name. All the international upheaval that was going on was God's discipline for the way his people had rejected him. 
But the promise was made that if any person put their trust in God during all this turmoil, he would see that they were kept safe and they would be returned to the land once it was all over. The reason Isaiah was asked to take his son with him to this meeting was as a visual illustration of this message. God really wanted Ahaz to get it. And in truth, God's message to Ahaz is very reassuring. Listen again to how it starts in verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. Can you see it? It's full of encouragement. And God then goes on to explain why Ahaz and the people are not to worry about the kings of Israel and Aram. To the human eye, they might seem fearsome, but from God's perspective, they were nothing at all. Nothing more than two smouldering stubs of firewood. You might like to picture the burnt out ends of logs on the side of a campfire. They remain glowing with heat even after the fire has gone out. And God says, the kings of Aram and Israel may smolder with anger against you, but there's no genuine fire there. There's no danger. They'll soon be snuffed out entirely. You need not fear them. And you can then hear God asking King Ahaz rhetorical questions. Who is King Rezin, the king of Damascus? Who is King Pekah, the son of Ramalia? They're nobodies. Mere men. They do not descend from the house of David like you do the house that I made a covenant with, they will not defeat you. It will not take place. It will not happen, says the Lord. And God's message to King Ahaz then finishes with an urgent reminder of the moral to this whole story. Verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God urges King Ahaz to put his full trust in him and in him alone. I hope all this background is making sense. But we're now getting to the point where it becomes very relevant to us today. In verse 10, God is so eager to get Ahaz to put his trust in him, he goes one step further from his previous message and he offers to give Ahaz a sign to prompt his faith. And this sign could be a great one, a sign of any magnitude Ahaz like. It could be from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. Just get the sense of this moment. God is pleading with Ahaz to reach out in faith. It's so important that he sets the right example for the frightened people of Judah. And God knows this is going to be the last chance for him to do it. God is pulling out all the stops to move the Judean king to trust him before it was too late. But what do we find? King Ahaz refuses this incredible offer. And maddeningly, he does it while trying to look pious. I will not ask I will not put the Lord to the test, he says. Now, before you ask, it is true that sometimes God disapproves of people who keep asking him for signs. This is because God knows that the people who do this are just looking for an excuse 
to delay stepping out in faith. But on this occasion, it was not the people asking. God himself was offering to give the sign. And come on, who wouldn't want to see an amazing sign from God to help them trust him more? We need to understand that for Ahaz to turn down this offer is utterly bizarre. And Isaiah is certainly very frustrated with his response, isn't he? Just listen again to his reply to Ahaz. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? It becomes clear that there must be something else going on here. There must be something else at work in Ahaz's mind. Do you want to know the real reason that Ahaz refused God's offer for a sign? The real reason is because King Ahaz has already decided what he's going to do in this difficult situation. Like Israel and Aram, Ahaz is going to make an alliance too. Let me read you something from 2 Kings 16. This is the historical record of Ahaz's life and reign. This is verses 7 and 8 of that chapter. Ahaz sent messages to say to the king of Assyria, I am your servant. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and he sent them as a gift to the king of Assyria. That's right. You heard correct. God pleaded with Ahaz for Ahaz to trust him. Ahaz refused and put all of his trust in the Assyrians instead. That snivelling piety. Oh God, I wouldn't dream of putting you to the test. Utter rubbish. It was just a mask for something much more sinister. Ahaz threw his lot in, hook, line and sinker, with the Assyrians. He took all the sacred objects out of the temple and he gave them to Assyria as a bribe. Later on, he even had an Assyrian altar copied and placed in a Jerusalem temple... So he could make sacrifices on it instead of the altar dedicated to the Lord. Ahaz put his trust in the worst place possible. The enemy of God's people and the idols of Assyria. He put his trust in pretty much anything but God in order to protect his own position of power. Now you don't need me to tell you that God is going to be very unhappy about this. Ahaz is the king. He's supposed to set an example. But all he is doing is leading the people astray. So God decides now is the time to act. He decides to ignore Ahaz's refusal and send a sign anyway. A sign not just for King Ahaz, but for all of Judah. You see, God wants the ordinary people of the land to see what a wretched king they have and to urge them not to go along with him. Judah were not to put their trust in Assyria. They were to put their trust in the Lord. So what was this sign going to be? Well, from verse 14, it is described exactly. A young woman 
currently a virgin, as this prophecy is announced, would give birth to a son. And even while that son was very young, still eating the baby food of curds and honey, he would already have a better sense of right and wrong than King Ahaz did. And before this boy comes of age, that's 13 in Jewish culture, the enemies that Judah dreaded will have already been laid waste. And when Judah see all of this take place exactly as described, they will know for certain that God really did give this message. He is the God who is Emmanuel, the God who is with them all the time and sees everything that's going on. Oh, and by the way, Judah, once you have seen this sign, and both of Israel and Aram have been defeated, God is then going to send Assyria to threaten you as well. And those who've rejected this sign and stubbornly refused to trust God will suffer the consequences. But the faithful remnant who choose to trust God will return to their land. Sheer Jashub says the Lord. Now here is the incredible thing. This sign is fulfilled very quickly, exactly as God said it would be. In the very next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah marries a young woman who was a prophetess. This woman, who was a virgin up to her wedding day, then becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son. By the time that boy is three years old, 732 BC, Aram has been crushed by Assyria. By the time that boy was 12, 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel has been defeated by Assyria as well. The two smouldering stubs have well and truly been put out, just as God said they would be. God really did protect Judah from their enemies. He saved them from harm. He rescued them when it seemed impossible. God kept his word to the letter. He really was in the land. He really was with his people. He really did know everything that was going on. He really is the God who is Emmanuel, God with us. What we all need to realise then is that when we hear the name Emmanuel, we've got to take it really seriously. Because it means that God is here. He is here with us right now and he knows everything. On one hand, that is very good news. God loves us. He will personally rescue us from our enemies. He will ensure that all those who put their trust in him will survive. But on the other hand, God being with us in every moment of our lives is quite a fearful thought, isn't it? Because it means that he sees all of our unbelief. And he sees every single person who defiantly refuses to put their trust in him. And he sees every single person who sides with the enemy and works against his plans. And he will deal with them justly. This is the truth about Emmanuel. Because God is with us, he will rescue us, and he will judge us 
justly. Now, the reason that I've labored all of this time to explain this important context to you is because only now can we really get to the heart of the Christmas story. Let's now fast forward 750 years to around the year 1 AD. Israel are again in trouble. Their land is under threat from armed forces. This time not the Assyrians, but the Romans. And the people are again desperate for a sign. They want to know that God is still with them. That he still loves those who put their trust in him. That he can still sort the mess out. And into this broken world comes another baby a baby this time born of a literal virgin not just a young woman who was currently a virgin when the prophet was spoken like Isaiah's wife but a literal virgin this baby comes from David's line the remnant who had trusted God and returned to the land in the days of Isaiah and of course we know this part of the story well Joseph finds that his fiancée Mary is pregnant. He's naturally very worried about that because he hasn't lain with her. So God sends an angel with a very special message. And the announcement in Matthew 1 was this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The reason that the virgin birth is so important is because it shows us that Jesus was fully God as well as fully human. On arriving into the world as a kicking and screaming baby, he showed that God was literally Emmanuel with his people. And from now on, for all people hereafter, Jesus is the only sign that we will ever need to put our trust in God. Jesus grew up to teach right and wrong, just like the baby in Isaiah. Jesus went to the cross to forgive our sin and then rose from the dead three days later to rescue us from all of our enemies, not Assyria or the Romans, but sin and evil and death. This baby that really lived and really grew up and really died and really rose again is now the ultimate sign that God loves his people and will rescue all those who put their trust in him. The Bible promises us that because God is Emmanuel all the time, nothing can separate us from his love. But we must never forget the other side to this name. Because God is with us, he also sees the truth of our hearts. And when this baby Jesus had grown up, he made it very clear that if we reject this sign, if we reject him and stubbornly refuse to trust God, we will suffer the consequences. Judgment for our sin is on the way, just as it was for King Ahaz. 
Acts 17 speaks of the day when Emmanuel will come again. And it says this in verse 31. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So God is with us and he will be with us again. God is Emmanuel. He sees and knows everything. He is fully aware of our hearts and what we really think and trust. This Christmas time, God is not looking for the empty ritual of tinsel and turkey. He's not looking for fake outward piety like that of King Ahaz. Oh, I'd never put you to the test. He is looking for us to put all of our trust in him. In the baby Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We have all the love and all the evidence we need for faith. If we put our trust in him, he will rescue us from our greatest fears.